You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. All right, top five clinical pearls. So these are all things that are like super helpful on a daily basis so that you can have things that are um, fairly common but have things in your back pocket. This looks super frightening. You look at this child, if they had a fever and they had these on the arms and the legs and they are really sick, this looks like meningococcemia that's on their face. But in fact, all this is is the resin of poison ivy oxidized to their face. The resin of poison ivy oxidizes black to the skin and you get what's called black dot poison ivy. Um, and the interesting thing is there's no rash here. So she shows a really interesting pathophysiology also, which is her body has never seen poison ivy. So the resin got oxidized to her skin today. You can see these little kind of like streak marks where you can see it splattered onto her skin or got scraped onto her skin. And because her body hasn't seen poison ivy, it's gonna take a couple of days for it to learn what poison ivy is. And then lo and behold, in two days, she's going to have this. So the, you can't get the resin off um, very easily. Uh, and the reality is the inflammatory response is gonna start. And within a couple of days, you're gonna have your regular poison ivy. Kids get lots of poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac on their face. Um, and because of that, uh, they get really swollen faces. If you ever look at a child and you're like, oh my gosh, you have bilateral periorbital cellulitis with itch, that's not a thing, it's poison ivy. We had three patients admitted to our hospital last week who were given two days of IV antibiotics before derm was called, and they had to have simply really swollen faces and they were called bilateral periorbital cellulitis. Again, probably not a thing. Um, also, remember that because the uh, resin oxidizes to your skin, it's going to be there for about the two weeks that it takes you to form a new skin barrier. So the other thing that I see with poison ivy is people give people a medrol dose pack or like three days of prednisone or five days of prednisone. Well, what's going to happen is you get off of your five days of prednisone and the poison ivy is still stuck to your skin. So the inflammatory response comes back right away. And then you have a parent who calls and says, you got the wrong diagnosis. It's spreading. It's showing up in new areas. Um, if you're going to give oral steroids, which you do not always have to do, but if you're going to give oral steroids, give it for at least two weeks to make sure you're shutting it down while the resin is getting off of the skin. Um, I love topical steroids for poison ivy. I think they're really effective. We're the group who can use potent topical steroids because we're used to doing that. Pediatricians are like, you know, often hesitant to use more than hydrocortisone, but we're used to using triamcinolone, fluosinonide, et cetera. On a face, I might even give this person 0.1% triamcinolone for a week or two in order to shut it down if I can potentially avoid oral steroids. Um, uh, so you can often go a little higher because this is a, a self-limited disease. Atopic dermatitis, you don't want to go higher because they're still going to have eczema in two weeks. Poison ivy, they're not going to have in two weeks, so you know that there's an end point to using the medication. Um, I would not put clobetazole on a child almost ever unless they have lichen sclerosis, but um, FYI, uh, unless they're like an adolescent. This is the bane of my existence. Um, so we see patients who come in with this all the time. If you have a child who comes in with a new hand dermatitis, and it's not just on their dorsal hands from overwashing, it is almost always from slime. For those of you who have not heard of slime, you have not been around children that much because they play with slime incessantly. Um, every single birthday party that my daughters have gone to for the last like three years has been them with a new formula of slime that they make. So what is slime? It's children who take vats of Elmer's glue and add random junk to it and see if they can make it into something that they can mold. And then they play with it for the rest of the day and then they throw it out and then they make more. We have had 10 gallons of Elmer's glue I actually looked today just to kind of document it, delivered to our house in the last year because my children have made so much slime. 
And the unfortunate thing is when you mix up slime, you mix all sorts of other junk into it. So it's mixed in with borax, it's mixed in with Tide Pods, it's mixed in with whatever they found underneath of the bathroom closet or the bathroom sink or the kitchen sink, which is a horrendous idea. You would never give your three-year-old a Tide Pod and be like, hey, break it open, let's see what happens. Um, that's awful, <laughs> but parents online are doing this all the time. So um, we sometimes patch test people who have this um, uh, new dermatitis on their hands. It's very easy just to tell people to not use slime, but children are addicted to slime and they will often not not use it. Um, and uh, if you do patch test people, um, methochloroisothiazolinone is the preservative in lots of liquid stuff, and patch testing to it can be very um, um, high yield. It's in a lot of the glues. There was actually a company, uh, a group that went back and looked at a bunch of the um, over-the-counter available glues and found a lot of MI in there. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that's in there. It can be either irritant or allergic. It's treated very easily with topical steroids, but the key is getting them away from making slime. Um, this is what, uh, from our report. We looked and we found fragrances, MI, propylene glycol, cocomidopropyl betaine, formaldehyde. It's like the who's who of contact allergy that kids are bathing their hands in multiple times a day. Um, this is the ingredients list. If you just Google how to make slime, it has all of these things that are in there. I don't know what Purex Stay Flow is, but if it's meant to make something flow in like a pipe or something, that is horrendous for you. There's no reason that you should have your children touching that. Borax, like no one give, would give your five-year-old a box of borax and be like, hey, let's make a party of this. Um, but this is what children do. And children are smart. They learn that if you can put all of this stuff into slime, why can't I put bleach in there? Why can't I put, you know, um, Ajax in there or soft scrub in there and stuff that really really can cause severe irritation uh, and you worry about kind of poisonings with these. Um, and then if you don't have young children, you, you shouldn't know who this is. If you don't know who this is, you're much, much better off for not knowing who it is. <laughs> um, but this is Jojo Siwa, and she tells your children what to do, and they totally she listen to her. You should have her go on like a vaccination kick and be like, hey, vaccinate your children. Everyone would do it. Um, but she now has a slime kit showing people how to make slime, um, which is insane to me. Okay, um, so this was uh, them looking for MIMCI in glues. There were a lot of glues that had it in it. Um, and allergic contact dermatitis to slime is becoming an epidemic. There are now a ton of reports of this. Okay, um, this is a child who comes in and they're an adolescent and they have um, this thing on their arm and they are often either coming from the ER or they've been to the ER and they have a blister or an erosion in their skin and it looks like an infection or it looks like, you know, I've seen people get diagnosed with pseudoporphyria from this or bullous pemphigoid or pemphigus and what this is is a blister that the child caused in themselves to make sure that they didn't have to go to school. Um, so this is the salt and ice challenge. The salt and ice challenge is where you take a little bit of salt and put it on your skin, and then you put ice on your skin, and you can cause it to super freeze, and you can get frostbite really quickly. Um, people um, challenge themselves um, by basically taking salt and putting it in their hands. Don't do this, by the way. If you all come in with bandages on your hands tomorrow, we're gonna know. Um, and you <laughs> grab a piece of ice, and you can only hold it for like a minute or two before you get such horrible burns in your skin that your skin blisters off. When you're 12 or 15, that seems cool. I don't know why, um, but there are all sorts of things that kids challenge each other to do um, that are probably not a good idea. 
the children will almost never tell you that they're doing this because their parents just paid a $250 copay to bring them to the ER and then another $50 copay to bring them to you. And after that, if they're like, oh, by the way, I did this to myself, that is not going to go well for them. So they're usually like, I don't know what happened. People are doing cultures. We had a child who was admitted to the hospital with really significant salt ice who was being taken to the OR to debride their necrotizing fasciitis. Um, and it is up to us as, as skin um, uh, practitioners to basically look at this as clinicians and say, this is an outside job. It's geometric, it's square or rectangle or round, and it happened out of the blue, um, and your child is otherwise completely healthy. Something happened from the outside. Please don't go for any kind of like big workup. All right, whoops. Okay, so salt and ice challenge, geometric, bizarre, weird patterns. The amazing thing is kids can get admitted to the hospital and continue to do it to themselves because it gets delivered to them on the breakfast tray. So like you get breakfast and there's like a little packet of salt and then a little cup of ice for your orange juice and you can just go into the bathroom and do it to yourself again. Um, so uh, um, kids are devious and they do all sorts of stuff. There are lots of other challenges. Um, kids are really stupid. Um, so this is the Kylie Jenner challenge. Um, apparently it's really awesome to have really big lips. You can't make this stuff up. Um, and if you suck your lips into a bottle, you know how your mom told you when you were a kid, if you do that for too long, your face is gonna stay like that? That's actually true. Um, so if you suck your lips into a bottle for a long enough period of time, you actually damage the lymphatics and your lips may actually stay like this. Um, and so you have to be careful. Kids are challenging each other by spraying like um, deodorant deodorant on themselves in order to, to, to freeze their arms and see how long they can do it for. They're dumping boiling water on each other. They're throwing boiling water in the air in frozen environments and seeing whether it'll freeze by the time it hits them. If it doesn't, it turns out poorly and it turns out it doesn't very often. They're eating cinnamon spoons. If something weird happened in their skin and it looks geometric and looks like it came from the outside, the child probably did it to themselves. We had a kid the other day who had a red mark on her leg, which was um, treated as cellulitis for six weeks. And every day it looks slightly different. And every day the marker got a little bit out of the zone that it was in the day before. And the parents brought in these pictures showing it was like moving around and they couldn't figure out why it was all red. She'd seen like five specialists. She was literally just drawing on her leg with lipstick. All right, so again, we look at the skin all the time. You can recognize things that are not natural, are not diseases that you know about, and kids may be doing it to themselves. The Tide Pod Challenge is the most ridiculous one. Tide made detergent look like candy. I don't know whose idea this was, but it's really stupid. Um, it looks really, really tasty, and kids eat it, and then they die. All right. Um, okay, so uh, um, Leanne talked a little bit earlier about uh, trichotillomania, trichotillosis. Um, I have to say that N-acetylcysteine has been extremely effective in my practice for lots of OCD behaviors. I actually got a bottle of it and started taking it just to see if it could turn down my OCD. I wasn't consistent enough, so I haven't, don't have enough OCD to actually take it every day. Um, but I really think that it's very successful for people who have recurrent behaviors. It was originally um, studied in a randomized control trial that was extremely well done um, for trichotillomania. We had our epidemiologists actually look at it and see whether they could pull it apart, and it was well done. They couldn't pull it apart. It was actually um, uh, a very effective thing. So, um, oh, cool. N-acetylcysteine is the answer. Um, so the, why did people put interlesional catalog? Because this looks like it should be alopecia areata. 
But the reason it's not alopecia areata is because it's too bizarre looking, all right? You have regrowing hair. None of it's completely bald. If you're trying to diagnose alopecia areata, you should be able to rub your finger over top of a bald patch and feel like it's the same thing as if you're rubbing like a baby's butt. Like if there's no hair that's ever been there, Whereas with trichotillomania or trichotillosis, there are usually broken hairs um, or hairs of different lengths. So trichotillosis, um, younger kids will just tell you. The three-year-old would be like, yeah, I pick my hair, it's super fun, and you can just like watch them do it. The eight to 15-year-olds will not tell you that they're doing it and they will hide it, and they, that's where you get in these kind of challenging conversations. It's usually bizarre patterns. It turns out it's much easier to pick your upper eyelids than your lower eyelids. So if you're trying to determine whether someone has trichotillosis versus alopecia areata and they're missing eyelashes, um, you can, don't try this at home, but it, it really is really hard to get to your lower eyelashes. So if they have lower eyelashes missing, that's probably alopecia areata. If they have only upper eyelashes missing, that's probably trichotillosis. This is the Band-Aid sign. So this is you do a biopsy, which hopefully you don't have to do. You put a Band-Aid over top of it and you tell them you can't remove the Band-Aid. It is medically really dangerous to remove the Band-Aid for the week that you're gonna have the stitches in. And you come back after a week and they magically have hair growing underneath of there. And then you've got your answer. Um, again, N-acetylcysteine over the counter, um, huge improvement um, in clinical trials. Uh, and um, this is for OCD behaviors that are really hard to treat. I had, um, just to give you one anecdote, I have a patient who's severely autistic and nonverbal. So this is not a patient who's gonna fall for a placebo effect. Um, and he was on clonidine and he was on an antipsychotic because he was picking his skin so excessively he was being sent home from school every day. Um, I said, just as a Hail Mary, I gave him N-acetylcysteine uh, and within a couple of weeks he actually stopped picking his skin. So there's something physiologic to this where it really does stop the pathways of OCD behaviors. Um, and this is the other place that it's really helpful. Kids, again, uh, Leanne talked about this, but kids who have a little bit of acne but a ton of excoriation, I really like adding this to their acne regimen because it's super simple. Um, there's probably not a whole lot of downside to it. Parents love having something that's over the counter that they can get at the vitamin shop um, that uh, can work really well. Oh, cool. So what are your options for this? Um, Brian did an amazing job of turning these into ARS questions, and I am um, uh, skipping over them. I apologize. So uh, honestly, I would probably do all three of them because I would still treat their acne, but N-acetylcysteine, I think, is a really, really good option. So this is the dose range. It's only been adult trials, so you have to kind of extrapolate down to children. Fortunately, most of these kids are teenagers, so you can kind of use somewhat close to the adult um, doses of them. The dose range that was used in adult trials was 1,200 to 3,000 milligrams, usually divided twice a day. Um, and about half of the patients got significant improvement versus a very small percentage of the people in the placebo group. Uh, there weren't any really significant side effects, again, because it's an over-the-counter kind of amino acid derivative. Uh, and um, other things that, that people have used it for, median nail dystrophies, where you kind of push back your nail over and over, um, skin picking, acne excoriae, trichotillosis. We see a lot of these kind of psych derm things um, within, within dermatology. All right, so this is an 11-month-old. I kind of alluded to this earlier. He was told he was allergic to milk, soy, peanut, eggs, and wheat. This is where you really want to get an, a nutritionist involved and in making sure that your child is not going to be nutritionally deficient. And this is a much more kind of clean-looking uh, version of kwashiorkor. 
Kwashiorkor definitely happens. We have kids who are eating, you know, just um, rice milk or just like frosted flakes without any um, uh, um, cow's milk in it because it tastes really good, uh, and they get protein deficient. And it looks like this kind of flaking paint or this crazy paint look in it, and you've got all this peeling that's happening, and it doesn't look like typical eczema. Um, it's not respecting the areas of eczema. It's kind of all over. Um, and this is typical for um, kwashiorkor. So again, you wouldn't look at this and say, oh, that looks like all the other eczema patients I saw. It just looks strange. It looks like peely. Um, it's not especially itchy, and the child is edematous. This is where growth curves can get in your way. So if you look at a growth curve, this child's actually gaining weight because they're gaining fluid because they're not keeping any of the fluid inside their blood vessels because they're low on albumin. Um, and so they get chubbier, but also more um, uh, rashy. And this is, again, the end stage um, of that. So kwashiorkor totally does happen in 2019, um, typically from rice milk. We kind of went through this earlier. Consider checking zinc also, because these children, in addition to be low in protein, are often low on zinc. All right, this was a week ago, and I got consent for this. I got this picture from a pediatric dermatologist who got it from a pediatrician um, who, uh, whose um, patient had sent it in. And I looked at it, and I was like, I don't know what that is. And it's this little cystic-looking thing, or maybe it's some sort of like you know um, weird nevus. So we went through A, B, and C. So um, uh, once you give an answer, um, whether you'd biopsy, express fluid, or send to a plastic surgeon. So yeah, awesome. You could do any of those three things. This is molluscum. Um, molluscum is a great imitator within pediatric dermatology. It does all sorts of stuff. It can look like a dermatitis because it can kind of cause its own eczema and be studded with little molluscum, but it can also look like a cyst. And one of the clinical pearls that's really helpful, I find, is I basically looked at it and I kind of peeled the scab off a little bit and I pressed on it and it shot out a little bit of that kind of white molluscum stuff. And in order to prove that it was molluscum, I put it on a slide and I KOH'd it like I would do for tinea. And the interesting thing is you can actually see these molluscum bodies or Henderson-Patterson bodies fairly easily under KOH. These are these oval-looking kind of clear cells that are in here that are way too oval to be keratinocytes, and these are all molluscum bodies under the microscope. I know that 99.9% .9 of the time you don't need to KOH molluscum to get the diagnosis of molluscum, but if you do have something that you're not sure what type of cyst it is, or it's draining, or you're um, not sure exactly what it is, it's useful to have this in your back pocket so that you can kind of prove that something's molluscum without having to do a biopsy. Doing a biopsy on that child's ear, who at um, 15, 18, in the cartilage, you really want to try to avoid that area, especially in children. Um, all right, uh, last clinical pearl. This is a three-year-old who went to Costa Rica and has a two-month uh, history of a non-healing lesion. If you, you can do this at home if you want to, or if you have a phone, you can do it right now. Um, if you go into Google Scholar and you basically put in non-healing ulcer and Costa Rica, it will literally tell you the answer. <laughs> Google Scholar is a very helpful way of if you have two weird things that happen to people, like most people don't go to Costa Rica every day, and most people don't have non-healing ulcers. If you put the two of them together, it will tell you that this child has leishmaniasis. It may tell you seven other things, and if you use regular Google, 
Google, you may get like 17 other things, and some of which are inappropriate. Um, but Google Scholar will tell you just the medical information. Um, and it's a very useful way of diagnosing really rare things, because none of us can remember all of these things. None of us can remember what the home country of leishmaniasis is. But if someone came back from somewhere really weird and they have a strange skin lesion, um, Google will probably be able to help you to tell you what's endemic in that area and what they might have gotten. Um, and leishmaniasis is uh, kind of um, uh, not common in this country, but super common in other parts of the world. Um, I guess this is the last one. Sorry, I put in one more. If you have someone who is itchy with no rash on the back of their scalp, they have lice, okay? So if you don't see scaling, you don't see any rash, they're just going to town on the back of their scalp, they have lice. Um, my five-year-old, we got it, um, her into this private school which was like um, awesome and we were really excited about it. And we were, my wife and I were the lice monitors for the school. So they asked us to look at all of the kindergartners on the first day to just make sure no one came to school with lice. So we looked at all the children and then, and that was on a Friday. And on a Saturday, my daughter's standing in front of the reptile cage at the zoo going like this. And I was like, oh crap, the only kid we didn't check was our own. Um, and I opened up her hair and she was like crawling with lice because she had visited her cousin a few weeks before in California. California, and like they don't treat lice there because they were all granola and like mayonnaise didn't work um, and we were angry at them um, but we were the ones who actually brought lice to the new school we were very embarrassed we did call the nurse and say hey by the way our daughter has lice um, uh, so what are your options the over-the-counter options actually have a lot of resistance now so Nicks and Rid are things that don't always work um, I treated my daughter with um, both Nicks and Rid and then Nicks again within the course of of like three hours um, and then when she wasn't seizing yet I was like maybe I should stop doing that uh, and then we got one of the um, prescription ones so um, my personal favorite uh, I, for um, uh, some reasons is you um, benzyl alcohol which is Ulesvia I like it because it's not a pesticide it's got really really um, good efficacy it's approved down to six months of age you basically just put it in the hair wash it out it comes with a tremendously good neck comb um, but at the same time, it's kind of harder to get. Spinosad and ivermectin lotion are both um, now approved for lice uh, and both also very effective but can be more expensive and hard to get also. Again, they are kind of versions of a um, pesticide. So um, cool. So that is the rest of my clinical pearls. I really appreciate it. That, um, you guys have had tremendous attention. You're almost done. Dr. McGinnis is going to tell us how she takes care of her top cl clinical pearls, and then we'll answer some questions at the end, and then everyone will get to alcohol. Yay. <laughs> Thank you so much for sticking um, with us. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot today. And what I wanted to do with these top five pearls for this year for me was try to do things that we couldn't really find in a textbook. So here we go. Um, the disclosures aren't really relevant here. The five pearls that I'm going to share with you are using a Doppler to detect elevated blood flow. I touched on this earlier, but I'm going to do a deeper dive. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about clinical differentiation early on between hemangioma and capillary malformation, because I think that's a stumper. What is various types of facial dermatitis in toddlers? Um, I'm going to try to spin you a new story for pediatric perioral dermatitis, and then we'll talk about how I use squaric acid for alopecia areata. So this is pearl number one. This is our six-day-old female. She's got a nodule on her neck. It's kind of blue. There's some telangiectasias. It was noticed on the first day of life during her bath, but, you know, babies have, you know, kind of pudgy necks, and so it might not have been evident right, right away, so possibly it, it was congenital. 
most likely was congenital. It was not observed on prenatal ultrasound. And she was initially, and probably rightly so, referred to our hematology oncology colleagues for concern about this nodule on the neck. Um, per our Hemont colleagues, this baby underwent a sedated MRI at day two or three of life and then had an evaluation by otolaryngology for possible resection. And our pediatric otolaryngologist works with us in our vascular anomalies clinic, and so um, he suggested that maybe we should, you know, have the baby seen in pediatric dermatology before they go ahead with a biopsy. And if you look at this MRI, um, this is actually a really reassuring finding here. You see that little hypoechoic um, spot right in the very anterior neck. It's respecting all the tissue planes. It's got a lot of high blood flow. Um, and so this really does look like a vascular lesion. Um, so we came to pediatric dermatology about two weeks old, and we saw this lesion, a little bit of pallor, some blue color, some coarse veins, and telangiectasias. No other skin findings, baby's doing fine. So I'm expecting you guys all to get this one. What are we, do what are we dealing with here? What, what was the diagnosis that we made? Is this a fibrosarcoma? Are we scared about this? Congenital hemangioma, infantile hemangioma, is this a venous malformation or a lymphatic malformation? Awesome, 60% got the right answer. This is a congenital hemangioma. And so here is how you can help yourself with making the diagnosis of high-flow vascular birthmarks in clinic really easily without needing to do extra studies or a biopsy. And it's this old-school Doppler that I learned from having worked with Alona Frieden at UCSF, who's kind of the queen of infantile hemangiomas, and then with John Mulliken at Boston Children's Hospital, who is sort of the guru of vascular anomalies and the father of the field. They both have this. I would suggest that many of us need one. Um, so this can get you out of a jam. I showed you the photo. You just need a little ultrasound gel. You put it on, and if you hear a whoosh of turbulent blood flow, you know that there's arterial blood flow in that tumor that you're evaluating. And so there aren't very many things that are high flow. So this can really narrow your differential very quickly. And so you can get to infantile hemangioma, which would be high flow, congenital hemangioma, again high flow, or AVM right away just with using the Doppler. What other vascular lesions are high flow on Doppler? Well, arteriovenous malformations, and here's one involving the left foot. This is a stage three involving bone with skin breakdown. Um, this patient did very well after embolization, but if you put the Doppler on there, you will hear a lot of turbulent blood flow. It's high flow. And then as Jim was talking about in his great genoderms lecture, these thumbprint capillary malformations of CM-AVM synd syndrome are high flow. They have little um, arterial component to them. And if you put the Doppler on, it's kind of amazing. Even in those smallish ones on the leg of this patient who has CM-AVM, you will hear high blood flow. So it's kind of phenomenal. Um, hemangiomas that are deep can be really tricky because you have an infant with a deep blue-hued nodule that's growing. So that scares people. And unfortunately, MRI and ultrasound aren't that specific, and there can be a lot of um, room for you know, different interpretations based on the radiologist that you work with. So I find that if we can just put the Doppler on, we can really you know, feel more confident about our clinical diagnosis. Turns out that pyogenic granulomas are also high flow on Doppler, and this makes sense when you think about that little central arterial that pumps out when you know, we, we remove them. 
system. Um, so I'm actually working with my clinical fellow this year to write up all of these uh, um, high flow lesions because I think that this is a pearl that um, would, you know, it, it would be good for, for lots of people to know about. But if you didn't train at UCSF or Boston Children's, you may not have a Doppler um, in your clinic. So congenital hemangiomas are high flow on Doppler. They are arterial. Um, this is an example um, similar to Jim's from earlier today of a rapidly involuting congenital hemangioma and a non-involuting congenital hemangioma. So you guys all got the diagnosis, and I'm going to skip there. Um, so I think I won't belabor that point. We've talked about how riche and niche and piche. And notice I'm saying riche and niche, and that's because I'm Canadian, um, so I speak a little bit of French, but these were originally described by Odile Angelras, and she is from France, and so the, um, hence the sort of French accent on all of those. So we respectfully um, use riche and niche um, in, in her honor. Um, but they are distinct from infantile hemangiomas. They have a very distinct postnatal course, um, and where infantile hemangiomas involute slowly over that first year, riche are typically you know, done involuting by about six months. Niche stay the same, and piche are somewhere in the middle. But riche don't necessarily leave normal skin behind. Um, Though they involute, they can leave atrophy and telangiectasias and very prominent veins. Rare complications include bleeding. We talked about that. It's especially concerning on the scalp, um, ulceration, and sometimes, if they're very large, transient thrombocytopenia. And here's an example of a riche that's sort of in the process of involuting, and you can tell it's becoming a little atrophic. You can see a little fold of a nidoderma um, where it's involuting there. This is a large niche on the shoulder of a young girl. Um, it's grown in proportion to her her whole life. It's warm. When you actually feel this and you palpate, it's warm because of the high blood flow, so niches often feel warm. Um, that pallor or you know, vasoconstricted pattern and then those coarse telangiectasias are what gives the, the clinical diagnosis away. Niche can become a little bit more problematic during times of hormonal change, just like any vascular birthmark or vascular anomaly. Um, so estrogen can make things flare up a little bit, become a little more tender or swollen. A couple more examples. Okay, so going back to our case, here is our little infant at two weeks with what we made the diagnosis with a congenital hemangioma, and here she is at six months, and it's gone. Now, I don't know if there will be some, you know, anidoderma left behind later. Again, babies have quite a bit of adipose tissue on their neck, and so I think that we're not quite seeing the skin changes here yet, but they, they may be to come. So that's a reach. So summary points, Doppler evaluation of vascular birthmarks can really help you. It will really help you with those high flow lesions and narrow your differential pretty quickly. Okay, so number two, hemangioma or capillary malformation. What are we thinking here? These are pretty similar looking. Baby one or baby two. Let's see. So which one has a hemangioma? One, two, both, or neither? Let's go. All right, let's see what you came up with. Baby two is correct, so 56%. Great job, guys. I think that's really high, because I do think this is tricky. 
Um, so let's use our clues here. Baby one is obviously a younger infant. She is quite pink from her fetal hemoglobin, and the stain is very, very um, you know, dark purple red because of this. Over the next few weeks to months, the fetal hemoglobin will change to adult type hemoglobin, and that pink color that you see in that right at the newborn period will fade, and the baby will get a little paler like baby two. Um, so you can see this baby's a little bit older. And using your clinical clues here, you can see that this baby's eyelid is a little bit swollen. There are little islands of proliferation here that you would not see with a CM. As Jim said, they stay static. They don't change. Hemangiomas grow. They proliferate. You can see the little islands of proliferation, and they can become more confluent. But um, I think those are the pearls. And so we know that they grow rapidly in that, those first five to seven weeks. And we can see um, those islands of proliferation might be our first clue. I just want to show another photo of that type of hemangioma that tends to be segmental, that hemangioma with minimal or arrested growth, the IH mag, um, because those ones can be more um, complicated and are more likely to be associated with things like face and lumbar syndrome. So here are two examples of a hemangioma precursor that you might see right at birth. Um, this sort of bruise-like, purple, dull brown um, papule, or well, I would probably call it a plaque on the cheek of this newborn with a little pallor around, around the surface. So if you see that halo of vasoconstriction, you're thinking more this could be a hemangioma precursor. And I'm sorry that image is a little bit blurry, but you get the idea. Um, so yeah, I won't. I think we covered all of that. And then the minimal or arrested growth type, I've shown you quite a few examples now. I think you could all pick that up, and, and it's your clue to the fact that these are hemangiomas and not capillary malformation port wine stains. So hemangiomas present with precursor lesions. They become thicker. They have islands of proliferation that can differentiate them from CM port wine stain. And even early on, you will get high blood flow from most infantile hemangiomas. move along because we've kind of covered that and I want to get to the next one. So facial dermatitis in toddlers and infants. What is it? Do these children have the same rash? What's going on here? Okay guys, what is it? Is this eczema, psoriasis, or something else? Okay, we're kind of split here, guys, but the answer is B. This is psoriasis, and let's find out why. But, but what about this one? What, what does this child have? Is this eczema, psoriasis, or other? Thank you. I like the music. They should have played this during the salt ice challenge question. And so 85% of you can recognize atopic dermatitis, but psoriasis was harder, and I get why. So facial dermatitis in toddlers, what is it? So I think we can all agree that this looks like the kind of impetigenized, crusted plaque of atopic dermatitis. This one's a little harder. It's not as crusty. It's a little more well demarcated, but yet it's occurring in the same kind of areas where atopic dermatitis um, occurs. Again, two more examples where you can see more psoriasis-like, 
and more atopic dermatitis-like with more crusting and scale. So I like to call this rash, because I see it over and over again in, in the toddlers, the scaly butterfly. And if you look here, we have a pattern where probably the irritant effect is kebnerizing the psoriasis, just like it does in the diaper area. So in toddlers, the diaper and face can be your first sign of psoriasis. Um, one of my mentors told me that if you ever see involvement of the nose and you think something is eczema, you have the wrong diagnosis. So the nose is most often spared with atopic dermatitis, but in these patients you can often see the scaling and plaques on the nose. So facial psoriasis often takes on this kind of like butterfly distribution because it becomes well demarcated in the setting of all of this irritant effect. It often involves the nose. The surrounding skin usually does not appear, you know, dry or what you would normal, normally see with, you know, the xerosis in, in the setting of atopic dermatitis. And I think this is because of all the kebnerization that occurs um, in this area. So here's a lovely picture of a child with true atopic dermatitis. It's pretty severe, but you can see the nose as clear as can be. And so why is this? What is going on here? Why are the cheeks always worse, and why is the nose spared with atopic dermatitis? Turns out that because of the differences in filaggrin expression, which ultimately goes on to comprise your natural moisturization factor, factor in the skin, they've done some studies. The group um, in Ireland with John McLean and John Irving have worked out a lot of these filaggrin um, studies. And so they've actually gone on to show when natural moisturizing factor becomes more mature in the skin. And no doubt, it's lacking early on, on um, in, in the cheeks with, with children who have atopic dermatitis, but it's very protected on the nose. So we have a good explanation. So psoriasis occurs during childhood in about a third of cases. Um, children with psoriasis do have higher prevalence of comorbidities like obesity, diabetes, um, hypertension, and psychiatric disorders. And management guidelines for pediatric psoriasis are currently lacking. And as, as I alluded to earlier, most biologic therapies are not FDA approved for use in, in children, especially under 12. Psoriasis presents in a heterogeneous fashion, and sometimes there's an overlap between eczema and psoriasis that can be very hard to differentiate. And so sometimes it just takes time before we get out of you know, the more atopic phase and into the more psoriatic phase. Um, in the diaper and on the face, I actually find the topical calcineurin inhibitors most helpful here. Um, this could, could be treated with you know, skin barrier repair um, to prevent that irritant effect and um, topical calcineurin inhibitors, and I've had nice luck with that. But let's talk about in mid-childhood. The most likely form that's about, that would present then would be the guttate flare, and oftentimes it's just due to group A strep, or maybe it is the natural predisposition to psoriasis. But these look more like little raindrops, well-defined um, scaly papules and plaques um, on the trunk. And so you should be looking for strep in these cases. I'm going to tell you a pearl that I've learned over the years about pediatric psoriasis, and that is it gets infected. Okay, the, the, the whole mantra with psoriasis never gets infected does not hold true for teens who pick their scalp and who don't like to bathe. So, teen years, plaque type psoriasis, especially in the scalp, gets infected. And you will not clear this with anything unless you get rid of the staph. So, of course, like usual, what I usually recommend is bleach baths. 
So summary of, of psoriasis pearls, it can occur on the face um, and the groin in younger children and can be mistaken for eczema. Um, usually the rest of the body is well hydrated, so use your clues and, and kind of look for other signs of ATP. Um, and if it's not, be thinking about psoriasis. And then facial psoriasis often takes on that butterfly distribution. Okay, Pearl 4, a story of perioral dermatitis. We've all seen this child. But let's start here with an immunocompromised child who has pre-BALL, and she's currently on maintenance chemotherapy. She has a three-month history of this really itchy skin rash on the face. Some of them are papular. They're a little bit coalescing. They look eczematous. It's kind of multiple morphologies here. But what do you think is the diagnosis? Is this Demodex, childhood rosacea? Could this be psoriasis too? Contact dermatitis or pterosporum? All right. This is a toughie. But I'm really impressed. So 40% of you got this. This is a demodex folliculitis or demodicosis in an immunocompromised patient. Because when you do the scraping, you will find them. There are two types. There's a demodex that's short and stubby and a demodex that's long. And I have two examples to show you here. So demodex is actually su supposed to be pretty rare in prepubertal children because they're not making a ton of sebum. However, it's readily described in immunocompromised patients, in the setting of HIV, and other types of immunosuppression like in bone marrow transplant patients. And treatment is um, pretty well described, and it's including topical permethrin, oral, or topical ivermectin. Here's a 14-year-old male who has dyskeratosis congenita and a status post bone marrow transplant. And I saw him last summer for this kind of acneiform eruption on the face and the forehead, cheeks and ears, and I thought, ah, I think I've learned my lesson now. I think I'm going to try and scrape this. And I'm gonna to suggest to you that if you ever wanna blow the minds of all the trainees that you work with, you should scrape for Demodex and, and do your oil prep, just like a scabies might. Look at this guy, he's the long, um, the long one who's like wiggling around there and still alive. But we all have Demodex on our skin. Um, and so this cleared really nicely with topical ivermectin just over a few months. So this kind of got me interested in stubborn perioral dermatitis because Perioral dermatitis in children has often been called maybe a variant of childhood rosacea. And lo and behold, as time goes on, there seems to be more implication for demodex and the pathogenesis of rosacea. So I was kind of interested in looking at this for, um, for children. And so wondering, gosh, could our kids with perioral derm actually have demodex or be mounting some type of host response to demodex that's unique to them? And so I have had several children in my practice with a more severe granulomatous type of perioral derm, tend to be some of my Hispanic patients. I'm not sure, maybe there's a genetic predisposition there. Um, but there are new reports implicating demodex in the pathogenesis of perioral dermatitis, even in immunocompetent children. So I was floored when Angela Hernandez from Spain published this in JAMA Derm, one dose of oral ivermectin. And this girl who had been treated for severe pustular papular rosacea cleared and like it's just an amazing mind-blowing result. I couldn't believe this. She followed it up a few um, years later with this um, paper that actually 
you know, you can kind of see a theme here. Look at this kind of scaly, perioral, um, eczematous sort of papular eruption in our patients. Um, and she used both oral and topical ivermectin here. So I thought, you know, there's something to this. So I emailed her. I asked her how she did it. We talked a little bit. She says one dose of oral ivermectin has been enough. Um, that's not the case here. In my practice, I've been doing some oral ivermectin and having some really nice results in perioral derm. Um, however, uh, multiple courses have been needed, and also I do find that there is a role for other topical anti-inflammatories such as metronidazole cream, protopic, tacrolimus ointment, or the more traditional you know, therapies for perioral dermatitis. But I just wanted to share this one case with you, the worst granulomatous perioral derm that I've taken care of over the last four years. Um, he really did beautifully initially with pulse azithromycin and um, topical tacrolimus. Um, I finally gave him some oral ivermectin. That seemed to help, but he was back um, three months later um, looking even worse during a flare. We finally gave him isotretinoin for a few months, and he's doing a lot better. Um, so he's stable and improved, but it's definitely not cured. So acneiform eruptions and perioral derm, I think this is a really interesting and evolving story here. Um, Demodex is mostly described in immunocompromised children, um, and scrapings will get you the mites. You can treat them, and it's very helpful. Um, but there is this evolving literature in immunocompetent patients, and I wonder a little bit about inhaled steroids or use of topical steroids leading to overgrowth of Demodex and maybe this becoming part of this cycle of perioral derm. But I think there's a lot more to learn um, from this and kind of interesting. But if you think of it, please do a scraping because I think you'll be um, excited to look at the microscope and see a little Demodex there. All right, last pearl is treating um, alopecia areata with contact sensitizers. So contact sensitization is actually a widely reported treatment. You can use things like DPCP, the di um, cyclopropranone, or the squaric acid, a dibutyl ester. And in a large meta-analysis meta of about 45 studies and a lot of patients when they looked at this, there seemed to be an overall response rate that was about 65%, which I would say is probably just about as good as you're gonna get with any of our treatments for alopecia areata. So I've been doing this for several years, and I like to use squaric acid because it's not painful. You can easily apply it at home, um, and I've had some nice results. So we can take a patient from here to here with squaric acid in, in a few months. Not every case, obviously, is gonna respond so well, um, but squaric acid is easy to get. Most of the times you can get it covered from your compounding pharmacy, um, and again, it's easy to, to do. It does have side effects, so you are gonna get some eczematous reactions from this. You can even have an id reaction, like a diffuse kind of hypersensitivity reaction from chronic contact, um, dermat from just from the chronic contact dermatitis that you're inducing in the, in the patient. It's itchy, and you can get some pretty significant lymphadenopathy, which I have seen. So here's the how-to. You can get some 2% squaric acid and keep it in the fridge at your office. It's good for a couple of months. We get it from our compounding pharmacy. 
If you don't have the ability to get that, it doesn't matter. Um, there are some papers that document that you really don't, it's good if you can do the topical sensitization, but it's not necessary to get a result. So if you can, you would sensitize on the inner arm, put a Band-Aid on, give them a little topical steroid in case they do get an exuberant reaction, and then they begin applying a more dilute solution of about 0.2 to 0.4 is what I use. Um, the, the literature says 0.02 to 0.2. I haven't found that to be very efficacious, so I actually do 0.2 to 0.4. And we apply that in a coin-shaped area, a couple of areas in the scalp. Um, a few times a week to see how they do. And then they increase that frequency of application nightly as tolerated. And so you can get some nice regrowth from this. Um, here's another one of my patients who had a nice result. But look at this lymphadenopathy. We had to discontinue. There, it's a lot. And it can really be alarming to families. So um, it's, it's a thing. It definitely happens. And when it does, you need to back off because their immune system is saying, mm, maybe this is enough. So contact sensitizers are a really nice option. It's painless. You can apply it at home. 65% um, efficacy is a nice you know, number in terms of a large meta-analysis. So I think there is some evidence behind this. Um, and you can increase the strength and the area treated over time. And side effects include the itch, eczematous reactions, and lymphadenopathy. But generally, it's pretty well tolerated. So those are my top five pearls for the day. So the Doppler differentiating infantile hemangiomas from capillary stains, thinking about psoriasis in, in toddlers, um, demodex, and squaric acid. Thanks. So I think we're going to take the last little bit of time to answer any questions. And people can ask about whatever they want. Um, we're happy to try to answer. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Candida for warts on the fingers? Sure. I think my mic's on still, so. Um, candida and warts on fingers. So, yeah, I, I will do candida on the hands, but I will um, definitely not do it on the distal fingers just because um, it's, a, it's written up, it's a thing. Um, you can cause, you know, edema, um, inflammation. Um, I, don't, I don't do it on the distal fingers. Um, Zantac versus cimetidine. I don't think Zantac actually has the same uh, mechanism in terms of turning down the uh, turning up the immune system that cimetidine does. So I think it is specific to cimetidine, as far as I know. Um, and then it, I think what that means is um, contraindications to N-acetylcysteine, asthma, surgery, bleeding, diathesis. Um, I would actually have to look more closely to see exactly what is listed as them. They are over the counter, and in the trials, they didn't list those as extreme side effects. Um, but in someone who's medically complicated, I, I typically am not giving N-acetylcysteine. Usually the, these patients are actually very straightforward medically, um, so it's usually not an issue, but I think that's an important thing to kind of look at. Um, I have no idea if you can take N-acetylcysteine with your pregnant. If you're pregnant, you should ask totally someone else what you should do during pregnancy because I want no um, uh, responsibility for that. Um, but uh, um, I think um, 
uh, it's probably look-upable or a pharmacist could kind of help with that. Abstinence and I pledge. what do you guys do? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm fine with, with putting down abstinence, and I think you just have to say abstinence. You can't say abstinence and something else, so it's just important that everyone's consistent. Um, so, you know, in my patients who are younger, pre-adolescent or early adolescent um, teens, I, you know, I, I have a long discussion with the family and we, we, we discuss it and I'm fine with it. I don't, I don't make every female patient um, take oral contraceptives. Yeah, I mean, I think if people have a religious reason not to take it or it's going to create huge family strife, as long as there's a really honest conversation with, if you got pregnant, you have to figure out what you're going to do um, because a baby has a really significant chance of having birth defects, then I, I think that that's not unreasonable. What's DOP? I don't know what DOP is. Anyone know? I don't have anything that I use acetylcholine for, um, so um, I'm not sure. Someone can certainly come on back and ask me afterwards. Delusions of parasitosis. Okay, so an adult thing. Okay, so um, again, you should treat children. Um, I have not used an acetylcysteine, which I think is probably the source of the question for delusions of parasitosis, because I have not seen delusions of parasitosis in a long time. I think it's actually probably pretty reasonable. Again, it's probably a very low risk medication to use for a lot of different things that are kind of OCD behaviors. I don't know if it's the same pathway in delusions of parasitosis. I work with seniors and see a lot of skin picking in my dementia patients. I, again, I don't mean to oversell an acetylcysteine because I think it's not a panacea for everything, but it, it has been tested in randomized control trials for trichotillosis and for skin picking, um, and it's something that even in the psych literature is actually prominently um, featured as a treatment for OCD behaviors, and so I think it's a reasonable thing to try. And you know, before using something like clonidine or something that's um, uh, a more kind of antipsychotic um, medication, I think N-acetylcysteine probably has a better safety profile than those medications. Yeah, I pledge requirements for transgender female to male. I think that there's a lot of discussion about that. Um, I think you know it was recently written up in mm -hmm. uh, the Pedsterm um, Journal. Um, I think as of right now, um, to my the best of my knowledge, it's the biology. It's like you're the gender that you were born with is what you have to be registered in in I pledge. Is I think that correct? They literally listed as if you are capable of getting yes. pregnant. So they unfortunately use the word women, which mm -hmm. I think is where it gets in the way. But I mean, maybe that should. My personal take is if you're capable of getting pregnant, then you should be counseled about the risks of pregnancy and discussed whether it's going to be OCP or abstinence or what you're going to do. And maybe if you're a transgender female to male abstinence becomes even more reasonable because of the way that you're interacting with other people, um, but it would be just a conversation to make sure that they understood that it doesn't matter what gender you assign um, uh, or um, that you identify with, it matters whether you're capable of getting pregnant. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. um, it is really, I have to say, I'm not, um, I, the books are now pink and blue. So I think in 2019, yeah. there will mm -hmm. be questions about that. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reality is that pink for girl books and blue for boy books was probably not the best choice for iPledge to switch to in this era. Um, they could switch away from that in this era, and it might have caused um, fewer um, issues. We've had questions already about why am I getting a pink book um, when I'm a girl. 
Um, I've read about side effects of bronchospasm with N-acetylcysteine in a few different case studies. So I, I, that's the second person who's brought that up. I have not known about the contraindication in asthma. I think that um, that is probably something that I should educate myself more on. Um, if you have asthma, um, I would definitely read up on it before you use it. Um, the other thing about N-acetylcysteine is it does taste horrendous, so people actually chop it up and make it into a powder, and I would wonder whether people can aspirate it as kind of a secondary problem. Um, but uh, N-acetylcysteine, it's not completely benign. It is over-the-counter and it's a vitamin, but just like anything that's over-the-counter, if you took too much of it, you can potentially cause a problem. That's true with any vitamin, um, and there are um, uh, potential issues with it. Um, stubborn lice with oral ivermectin. I feel like stubborn lice, the, the intention to treat trials, so, so basically the trials with using topical ivermectin and topical spinosad and topical ulesvia were so effective um, that there shouldn't be lice that are actually resistant to either one of those or at least not two of them. Um, so before giving someone oral ivermectin, I probably would try another topical medicine. I use oral ivermectin a ton because I have a really hard time getting those fancier new topicals. So I have no hesitation um, using the oral ivermectin. It works great. One other pearl is actually to take Cetaphil Gentle Skin mm -hmm. Cleanser yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and basically put it in your scalp. It's called the Nouveau Method. Someone published it a while ago. Mm -hmm. It wasn't done in the most ethically awesome way, but it is online. Um, as an option, and uh, he did publish his whole protocol. Basically, you put Cetaphil Gentle Skin Cleanser in your scalp and you blow dry it, and that also suffocates lice and seems to be extremely effective. Yeah, the hemangioma. So what do you tell parents about how quickly hemangiomas will involute? Um, I do use that as a general rule. I, I say that probably it's going to be age 10 until they look back and, and say that they can't remember it anymore. But then again, involution doesn't necessarily mean normal skin is left behind. There might be a little mark, some telangiectasias, um, a little anidodermatous skin. Um, so it's hard to know what, what it's going to be. So, luckily, with very thin superficial hemangiomas, typically they do go away and leave normal skin. Um, but the more it um, kind of is elevated from the skin and the thicker it is, the more likely it is to leave a little fiber fatty residuum behind. Um, just to answer, I'm just looking up N-acetylcysteine just so I'm, I'm more educated about it. The use, the clinical use for N-acetylcysteine is at massive doses for Tylenol overdose. So I think that's probably where those side effects come from and not at the doses that are used for um, OCD behaviors. But they do say in Hippocrates that the caution if there's bronchospasm um, or upper GI bleeding risk. Um, but the, really they're using that as the clinical use is in um, Tylenol overdose and, and they're using it. At, um, at 140 milligrams per kilogram. 140 milligrams per kilogram times a 70 kilogram person um, would be roughly 9,000 milligrams. So I think that's probably at a higher dose than we're typically using it for, for these um, things. How high do you go on propranolol? So it, it really depends. Like most of the time, I'm sticking with the two mg per kg, but there are times when I will go higher, up to 3.4 mg per kg, which was what the New England Journal study showed. Um, and typically, I'll switch from TID to BID at around age six months. Yeah, we start BID now, unless they're, you're an ultra preemie. So if you're um, uh, above 45 weeks, we'll start everyone at BID, and sometimes even below 45 weeks we'll, we'll, in the hospital, we'll start them at BID. But yeah, TID is, is, uh, um, more, makes more sense if you're worried about the dosing because you're giving smaller doses at the time. Yeah. Next question, if there are any more. 
I think the question on the subtle blue vein on the bridge of the nose, are we talking about the sort of the, the prominent dorsal nasal vein in babies that sort of goes away over time? Yeah, this is a thing. Is it's, that... not, it's online all, all, all over the place. Have okay. No, this? no, please tell me. So like the MTHFR gene, which does stand for a curse word if you add a bunch of vowels to it, mm -hmm. um, is uh, blamed on a whole lot of stuff because it's a very common mutation that people have. So I feel like this is kind of like the gluten story where like it probably does some things, but then it get blamed on a lot of other things. Um, so I have pe heard people talk about the idea that this blue vein is related to the MTHFR chain. I just don't think we know. The reality is the blue vein is really common. You see it in kids all the yeah, time. Yeah, and it goes away. All the yeah. time. And it usually goes away. Yeah. Okay. MMR? You know, across the country, people use different things. So Canada is what's typically used in our area. I've seen people um, use other parts of the energy panel, including, I think, like histo and other things that are kind of used in other energy panels. I've heard of people using MMR vaccine. I've never personally done it myself. It's the same idea, though. You're giving something some, to someone that their body should react to so that creates an inflammatory response. MMR is so charged in terms of people's um, information about it in the public because of you know the um, uh, past fear of autism and the whole measles thing, et cetera, that I probably would stay away from MMR just for the, the kind of not having the conversation. And then vaccines and eczema. I do think that when you get a virus, so like if you have eczema and you get a virus, an upper respiratory tract infection, it tends to make your eczema a little bit worse very temporarily. So I could imagine that if you get a vaccine and your immune system kicks up, it can make your eczema um, worse temporarily. Um, I, I don't know that it's causing eczema, though. I don't think we have any data for that. So I, I don't yeah. think that that's probably No, I completely agree with, with you, Jim. I think that anything that kind of gets the immune system revved up can certainly flare an underlying inflammatory disorder. But because eczema is really a skin barrier dysfunction, it's hard to like really kind of make that work with, with vaccines. But certainly in a child predisposed to eczema, you know, if, if they're mounting a little immune response, they might be having a little flare. What do you do for bleach baths on the head? We soak. So for bleach baths on the head in a baby, I'll take a white cloth, a white washcloth or whatever washcloth you have, soak it in and have the family just lay it on and then they, they're effectively soaking. Or if they can get the baby in the infant tub, you know, where they can submerge the scalp a little bit, we will, I'll do that. But I have the parents constantly doing soaking of the face, like taking the cloth and, and soaking the face the whole time. Um, nail psoriasis in children uh, um, can definitely be the first sign of psoriasis. You can get nail pitting as the first sign. Um, and it's really hard to treat. I, um, injecting people's nails uh, and, um, for nail psoriasis, I think, is almost never tolerated by a child. Um, I do try to put potent topical steroids occasionally, and if you really have horrible nail psoriasis and it's like dysfunctional for the patient and they care a ton, biologics probably do work, but they're a really huge deal to do for their nail psoriasis. The patient has to understand the risk that they're taking if they're using that. Yeah. So we just did the washcloth. Um, the Demodex, so how do you do your scraping? Same as scabies. So you just take your little 15 blade, um, put a little alcohol on, try to get as much scale, or extract a little pustule, because I do think that they're inside a little pustule, and you just try to get a nice smear, a little bit of mineral oil, and you can just see it right away. Uh, let's do one more. How do you treat poosborne folliculitis? What do you like? I mean, I, just about anything really will help. Like the azoles do help a ton, and then a little selenium sulfide can go a long way, or a ketoconazole shampoo to prevent the reservoir from building back up. But 
Yeah, I think they rarely need oral medicine. Yeah. You can use orals if you need to. You can use fluconazole. What you should not be using is oral ketoconazole. Yes. Oral ketoconazole, which is in lots of old textbooks, is not a thing for um, dermatology anymore. It's still used for some extreme infectious disease cases where the risk is worth it, but the risk of oral ketoconazole is so high that they've said that it is contraindicated for skin disease. Awesome. It's 545. You guys did a tremendous Thank job you. for Yo. a long time. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much for your attention. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.